two, Jeff Cameron Show, 97 on ESPN Radio. Thanks so much for tuning to it. Good Monday, everybody. Hope you had a great weekend. Hope your week's off to a good start. Thanks for joining us. I'm Jeff. That is Director Matthew. We're online, ESPNTallahassee.com. If you want to stream the show, you can watch it on YouTube. Hello, YouTubers. You can always email the program if you like. It's JCS at 979ESPNRadio.com. On Twitter, I'm at Show. All right, as we're... What to do, as I like to say, on Mondays. We'll bring in my good buddy, Irashfell, Warchant.com, the website. All guests appear via the Phone Hero hotline. Phone Hero specializing in iPhone and iPad repair. Two locations, 2915 Cary Forest Parkway, 833 West Gaines Street, online at PhoneHeroTLH.com. All right, let's do it. Ira, how are you, brother? I'm great, Jeff. How are you doing? I'm really good, man. We are 39 days in a wake-up from the start of college football when uh, Nebraska and Illinois, I believe it is, uh, kick off the first game of the college football season. So it just sounds good now that we're under 40 to be able to say that. And also, I know you're headed out of town uh, with uh, a strong contingent of folk from Warchant.com to go to the ACC kickoff, ACC meetings there in Charlotte. That's a meeting I typically go to. This is going to be one of the first ones I miss. But I know you guys will hold it down, and I get – to some degree, you're probably pretty excited, too. Maybe less about the drive, but certainly about what it represents in terms of kicking off what should be an interesting college football season. Man, 39 days, or 40, 39, 40 days, that's hard to even you know, wrap your mind around. It seems like it's uh, I know. been so long. So it's, it's great to hear. And, uh, yeah, ACC kickoff is always you know, kind of the first tangible uh, you know, event that we get to cover leading up to the season. And so really excited about that. And also because last year we didn't get to have one because of COVID. So uh, really just excited to kind of be back into like a football event in person. We haven't had, we haven't been able to cover anything like from a football standpoint, do interviews with people off of Zoom really for college football since, you know, the spring of 2020. So uh, for a lot of reasons, and then you add in all the you know interesting storylines for Florida State, but yeah, it's a, Really fired up about that. I'm always excited this time of year, but really fired up for this one. Me too, oddly. I think that ordinarily, I think any time, if you were a fan of a team, or in our case, if you were covering a team for your job that just came off a three and six season, hasn't had a really good football season to speak of in the last four years, uh, you would be maybe lukewarm on the start of college football because the product hasn't been compelling. But I think the storylines are compelling. I think the first real season for this coaching staff and the adjustments from what little they could learn from a year ago where they had a nominal number of people committed and bought in and then also dealt with a global pandemic. All of these things set up for a lot of intrigue. What can they accomplish? What is a realistic expectation? Who are going to be the stars? And right off the bat, you wrote about mixing the ingredients uh, for Mike Norvell and his big task uh, coming up. You can read that article, folks, at warchant.com. Um, you know, we're sending three guys, uh, two of which are in a quarterback competition. That's certainly a storyline. Another guy that's never played a down for Florida State in an official football game representing the defense, and he's going to have to be great because Florida State hasn't had a pass rush in forever, so Jermaine Johnson's going. Uh, what other types of things are you looking to glean from the ACC kickoff up there in Charlotte? What, what kinds of things are you going to ask Mike Norvell and these players? Yeah, you know, I think the the uh, one of the things I'm going to want to watch, just from an observer standpoint, is just kind of how Mackenzie Milton and Jordan Travis operate, how they kind of handle the media, 
um, how people react to them. Uh, you know, I mean, Mackenzie Milton's going to be one of the top storylines in college football, especially if he plays. Um, but even right now, when we don't know for sure if he's going to be the guy, um, he's going to be one of the top storylines. Certainly, it's ACC kickoff. I'm, I guarantee you, ESPN is going to want to do a bunch of one-on-one interviews with him and other media are as well, um, because his story is so amazing. His comeback from UCF, not only the fact that he he came back from those surgeries and you know so many surgeries and thought his career was over, maybe there was a thought he might lose his leg to to come back to play, but also because he was one of the top players in the country before that happened. I mean, he finished sixth in the Heisman uh, one year. So, um, you know, that's a huge storyline. But then, you know, Jordan Travis was the offense last year. I mean, Jordan Travis, without Jordan Travis, I don't know if they win two of the three games they won. And so, um, you know, so he's an important part. And and he was so important to that team last year. And now he's, you know, uh, coming out of the spring, was probably the front runner for the starting job. We'll see if McKenzie passes him. But, um, you know, so how he handles kind of sharing the stage with a, a guy, another guy like Jermaine Johnson um, and Mackenzie Melton, who has never played for Florida State. And then, um, you know, from from an information standpoint, I mean, I'd just like to hear some more details from, you know, Coach Norvell and the players, um, you know, tangible proof that – how tangible the proof is that things are different now. You know, when did they realize that, that this group is, is on the same page. And a lot of that's nebulous and it's hard to quantify. Um, but, you know, looking for examples of that um, where maybe a year ago things weren't where they need to be. In, and now that where they are, because I mean, talent is, is talent and it, it's going to take some time to get where they need to be, but they should have won more than three games last year with the talent they had. And they they'll have enough talent where they should win six or seven games possibly, but it won't happen if they don't clear those other hurdles. Yeah, I, I, I think it's a fascinating read on Coach Norvell in that it's a balancing act. He's on a tight wire here because he, he's a tightrope. He, he, this is not a great team talent-wise, but it is a team that has enough talent, as you alluded to, to certainly win a number of these 50-50 games. And those are the games that I think as fans – we all hyper-focus on. We get it sometimes that you're going to be outmatched in the midst of a rebuild where you simply don't have the horses to block a team like Clemson or maybe Florida. or you know Certainly there are a few teams that uh, fall under that umbrella. But there are enough games in what is a middling conference, to say the least, that you ought to have enough talent to win a few of those. And, and that's where he's going to have to make inroads, I think, Ira, to convince the fan base that everything is moving in the right direction. Win the games against the Wakes and BCs of the world and show us that you're maximizing your talent and that kids are bought in. Those, but, but, you know, how do you express to the fans at an ACC kickoff during interviews that you're excited about the direction of the program, but, oh, by the way, we're, we're not out here winning 10 games? <laughs> yeah, that's that's the yeah because the the always the you know the ever present question is going to be you know because you're Florida State and people know what Florida State is and that's a you know it's a, it's a cross they have to bear uh, if you're going to come here and take that job but yeah there, you know how long is it going to take to get back to Clemson's level how long is it going to take to to get to where even North Carolina is and so um, you know he's going to want to espouse confidence in his players and belief in them and and uh, but at the same time not um, you know, overhype it, and you know, to where the fans come come away disappointed. I think he's done a pretty good job of that. And that was one of the things that you know I think that that shined through during this recruiting process, where a lot of people um, have kind of said, okay, well, it's great that they they've got a lot of 2022 commitments. That's awesome. 
but they're going to lose them all once they start losing games. There's no way, you know, those kids are going to back out. But I think what's what's been smart about their approach has, you know, they're not telling these recruits like, hey, we're going to go 10 and 2 this year, and then you guys are coming in and we're winning the national championship. I mean, it, it is very, uh, he makes it, you know, painfully obvious that <laughs> it's going to, it's a long road. You guys are going to have to work extremely hard. You're going to be part of the solution, but it's not going to be a quick fix. And so I think he's taking the same approach with the players. And I think he can he can walk that fine line or walk that tightrope, as you said, uh, when he's talking to the fans through the media that, you know, we're I am confident in these kids. I'm confident they're going to do what we asked them to do. We're going to play hard. We're gonna, you're going to be proud of the effort and the competitiveness. Um, and we'll, we'll see what happens. But I don't think you're going to see him make any bold declarations, which, you know, I think we talked about last time, last week on Seminole Headlines that that was one of the mistakes Willie Taggart made was he did make some bold proclamations, and, and that was a mistake. Huge mistake because you are in a position where you overpromise and underdeliver, and that never goes well. You know, you just nailed it, Ira. I, I have actually talked to, had a lot of meetings lately, <laughs> and, and for a variety of reasons. And it's funny, invariably, those meetings turn from business to the discussion of Florida State football. And most of these people that I meet with, whether it's business or pleasure, are people that either attended the university, love the university, own businesses and need the school to play well and and need Florida State to return to being a power. And so we just start having casual conversations about Florida State and what do I think and what do they think. But one thing they all have in common, no matter where they sit, whether they're an alumnus, a booster, a fan, or just a, a citizen here in town that wants uh, the best for area businesses, uh, they want to see a team they can be proud of in a win or a loss, a team that they know is together and that will fight. I think they've grown so leery of sort of the false bravado that the bad teams represented. Um, mm-hmm. and, and they just want to see, like, I get, they, they all say, I get, we're not there. We, we're, we're, you know, we're on a third coach in, in four or five years. Uh, you know, it's, it's tough. But can you just go out there and be a unified force that plays together, pulls in the same direction and fights hard to the end and gives me a reason to be proud of your effort? And, that's that would go a long way in getting buyback both from players and everybody else who supports this program. And I, I do think that the spring showed us signs that maybe we are going to get that. Yeah, I think, I mean, I really think so. And, it, you know, when you look at what the, the change in this roster over the last, you know, 36 months or, or, or you know, close to two years now, um, it's, it's really, this, this has become Mike Norvell's team. Now it's not, there are still some guys who were recruited by, Willie Taggart, there are actually a couple of guys who were recruited by Jimbo Fisher, a few mm-hmm. guys left. Um, but, at the, but the players who have stayed at this point, they're here. They didn't jump in the transfer portal. They know what it's about. They know what they've gotten into. And he, he and his staff know, uh, have to believe that these guys are part of the program. and they're, they're bought in and they're bought in for each other. You know, one of the things that Alex Atkins, the offensive line coach, said when I talked to him back in the, I think it was before the spring, um, was he said, you know, it's not, it's not just about teaching. Like when you're, when you're teaching, when you're coaching and you've got new players, it's not just about teaching them the, the drills and teaching them the skills and getting them bigger and stronger, faster. The first thing you have to do is get them to where they love each other and care about each other and, and want the best for each other. Like that seems so mm-hmm. basic, but it, it, when you've got a pro- program that's faltering and has gone through all this transition, you, you lose that. And everybody's out for themselves, and you can't play football that way. And so 
I really think that's what we saw on display last year, especially on defense. That's why I don't think it's outrageous to think the defense can make a big improvement just because if those guys care about each other, if they if they want the best for each other, it brings out the best in you in football. It's kind of the, the essence of football to some degree because so, only one guy carries the ball and, and one or two guys is going to make the tackle, but everybody else has to do their job, and, and the good teams get that. And I think they're on the way to that. Um, and that's, you know, again, if that's in place, now, now, you've, now you've got a building block. But until that's in place, you know, bringing in more talent probably doesn't solve the issue. It's a great point because one of the reasons that we fall in love with the game of football, whether you played the game and then at some point you reached a level where you, you, you couldn't go on playing and you just still fall in love with the game and watch it forever more as a fan knowing about the sacrifice the players make or if it's just been you've always been a fan. To me, you can always pick up on the fact that it's the ultimate team game. All of the sacrificing that has to happen for any one play to work on either side of the ball is is readily apparent because, you, like you said, only one person has the ball in their hands at a moment and maybe two on a play, right? So you're seeing all the other pieces hard at work. And for that to operate at peak efficiency, there not only has to be great execution and strategy, play calling, also physically, but there has to be a passion and a love for one another because of all the sacrifices that led to that very moment that that play was called or was there to be made. So I think it's a great point. I think it's why people want to see a team that has that, at the very least, uh, at the forefront of what they do. Brother, safe travels to Charlotte. Uh, I'm sure I'll get to talk to you this week while you're up there uh, and glean some information from you. We'll be reading on Warchant.com all the good work that you guys will do, and I'll talk to you real soon. Thanks, Jeff. And I'll be be glued to uh, my my Twitter and other social media to see what what the latest is in your life. So, uh, <laughs> good luck with all that as well. Thanks, brother. Be good. That's uh, Ira Chappelle, Warchant.com. He is the uh, managing editor and uh, obviously does great work for Warchant.com. I'm excited to talk with all the guys up there covering this week. It is, like I say, kind of weird for me not to be up there. Um, it just so happened that the way negotiations have worked out in my career that this wasn't something that I could do this year, but I certainly know the vast majority of guys that are going up there. And, you know, to, to circle back on what Ira said, um, I am absolutely just chomping at the bit. I cannot wait for this season to start. I find there to be very real, not manifested out of boredom or pure fandom, uh, but rather real intrigue in what's going to happen with this team this year. I, I don't, I mean, there are certain varying degrees, extremes would be a better way of saying it, that I can rule out. They're not going to go, you know, two and 10. And they're not going to go 10 and two. And then from there, you look at if you're trying to gauge percentages, you really get into that very. I think high percentage land of what's the likelihood of five and seven or seven and five, right? That's where you get into the, that's where the, well, I think they got a 50, 50 chance to go six and six. You know, I think they got a, a 60% chance to go seven and five, or I think they have a 50 or 40% chance to go five and seven or however you uh, uh, assess these games and the odds. Now you can look at what Vegas has done. There are very real odds on these games and you can project rightfully how many games Florida State is likely to be an underdog in based on win totals, based on returning percentage of starters. You know, you can look that Florida State is likely going to be an underdog, even at home, against NC State. 
given what they have coming back on the offensive and defensive lines, what they have at quarterback. You can say that Florida State will absolutely definitively be and are currently an underdog to Notre Dame. I believe that line is nine and a half. So Florida State is already a distinct underdog at home in that first game. You can look at and, and project that Florida State will be a significant underdog, an overwhelming underdog against Clemson. You will know that Florida State will be an underdog against Florida and Miami. So now you've got a lot of games that I've just identified in which Florida State is going to be a significant underdog or a slight underdog. Uh, so now, now you start asking yourself the question about which of the other games are surefire wins. Well, obviously UMass and Jacksonville State are surefire wins. After that, you really get into the need for Mike Norvell and his staff and these kids to play well and find a way to come away with victories against the Louisville's of the world, the Boston Colleges of the world. They have to win those games if you're going to get to six wins. And losing those games not only puts you in a position where you won't attain the six-win total that you're you know, desperately searching for, but also it will create doubt in your abilities. As a coaching staff, you're trying to win everybody over, your players, but also the fans, so that that forward momentum we talk about, that sense of, hey, this is being built back up to where it rightfully belongs, continues. You don't, you don't want to and you can't really afford, from a recruiting standpoint, to take another step back. Let's hope we see that evidence. Jeff Cameron, Show 97.9 ESPN Radio. That we got to wait till tomorrow for the NBA Finals to renew uh, the acquaintances between the Bucks and Suns. Did you watch Saturday night? Did you tune into that, Donnie Brook? That war of a basketball game that was absolutely as enjoyable as any I've seen in a long time. That was a hell of a game. I was going to say that that fourth quarter specifically Woo! was some of the bas- best basketball I've seen in quite some time. I'm really saddened to think that, you know, I know these have these finals have not rated well at all. Um, and it's, you know, what, what the hell do I care if Jerry and Phoenix is, or Jerry and, uh, you know, wherever Topeka is, is watching. But these finals uh, in that last game in particular are, are kind of warrant our, our viewing. <laughs> it was sensational. Good for Giannis, man. What a star he's becoming in these finals. I mean, I say that because I feel like he's the most overlooked two-time MVP ever. I, I don't – you know, there was some doubts about him. They, I think largely because Milwaukee benefited greatly from all of the injuries in the East that allowed them to navigate to the finals. I mean, the sense that Milwaukee would never have been here if Brooklyn hadn't gotten so banged up is a fair thing to note. It's not their fault. It, that's just the reality. I think everybody knows they were not going to win that series. They were down two games to none. They were not going to win that series. And then everybody got hurt, and they were able to battle back. But to their credit, they did. 
And I think for some reason that the way that they, again, got through each of these series because of injuries to other superstar players seemed to negate who they were as a team in a lot of ways and negated a lot of what Giannis and his crew have done. Um, many guys, Middleton and others, have played very, very well. I, uh, In terms of the drama and the competition and the plays made at the end of that game the other night, I was absolutely riveted watching that with my oldest son. Um, that steal and subsequent alley-oop is a whole lot of, oh, my God, did you just see that? As a Sixers fan, going to give some love to my old boy, Drew Holiday. The stones it takes to, to throw an alley-oop <laughs> down one yes. on the road with less than 20 seconds left is something else. I mean, that was a whole get you some here. I mean, well, again, it's also a testament to the freakish, hence the nickname, athleticism of Giannis when he flashed to his right Drew's right and gave the quick hand to the sky like (laughs) you know here I am to immediately throw to that spot on the backboard where Giannis was in the moment that he threw on the fly it's a bit of a line drive tells you what he sees in practice it lets you realize what he has seen the Greek freak do over the course of his time together, right? Like, I know this guy. I could throw it over the backboard, and he's going to go get it. I just have to get it in the general vicinity here in time for him to go up and get it. I mean, and Giannis is being pushed. Chris Paul is pushing out <laughs> of sheer desperation. But to have the stones and go up and make the steal to begin with, like – I'm just going to kind of creep up and yank this out of your damn hands is what I'm going to do. <laughs> We're not fooling around here. I'm just going to take this. That was something. So now we sit and we wonder, here's the deal. Following three straight wins, the Bucks are now minus 400 at Caesars William Hill. Those are the same odds for Giannis to be named finals MVP. Jerry West is the lone player ever to be named Finals MVP on a losing team, which occurred when the Celtics defeated the Lakers back in 1969. Holding a 2-0 series lead, Phoenix was a minus 475 favorite to capture the franchise's first championship. Additionally, Chris Paul was an odds-on favorite at minus 160 to win the Finals MVP. Paul is now plus 900. If you believe that Phoenix could pull off a miraculous upset in this next game, maybe not miraculous, but a big upset in this next game, and then go on to win game seven. And it's due in large part because of a return to form for Chris Paul. Plus 900 is very good value if you want to sprinkle some pizza money, friends. For that matter, you could go ahead and throw a little pizza money at plus 500 Devin Booker if you think they're going to bounce back. If you just think that Phoenix is going to bounce back, then bet him right now because you got him at plus 320. But I wouldn't make that bet. I think Milwaukee's figured out Phoenix a little bit here. Speaking of which, we're getting to that time of year, and I know betting is not everybody's cup of tea, but I like that these numbers are out there. The Buccaneers prop bet William Hill on whether or not they'll go 17-0. and That's right. The NFL season this year is 17 games. Forgot about that till I saw the prop bet. That's right. We're not doing a 16-game season. We're doing a 17-game season. 
Will the Bucks go 17 and 0 during the regular season? Uh, most assuredly, they will not. If you bet yes, you get it at plus 2,500. You don't get great odds on the no. Minus 7,500. <laughs> Two college football teams have attracted the most interest. And given that we are 39 days and a wake up away from the start of college football, allow me to engage. Let's talk. Which two teams, Jeff? Auburn and Arizona State. That according to our good friend, David Purdom and Doug Kazarian. Betters, as in ORS, fading Auburn, backing the Sun Devils. The price bet the under on Auburn 7 has gone from plus 125 to minus 105. Trouble at Auburn. The price to bet the over on Arizona State 8.5 has gone from minus 110 to minus 125. Quote, it wouldn't be a surprise if we were off on some of these win totals. <laughs> that according to Nick Bogdanovich, director of uh, trading for William Hill. Uh, usually there's a pretty good formula for these. You've got 12 games. They went 10-2 and two last year. They've got this many starters returning. You look at their schedule, and you can pretty much make a number. But there's not much to base off from last year, and so many more kids are coming back with the extra COVID year. Odds to win the national championship, you already knew this. Here they are, the four or five teams. I think the best value here is the fifth team down. I'll float it out there to you if you're a sporting guy or gal. The ones that you don't get great odds on, although it's always plus money to bet one team against the entirety of, entire, uh, of a college football landscape, Alabama plus 200, Clemson plus 450, Ohio State plus 500, Oklahoma plus 500, but here's the real value in my estimation because I think they've got a very good shot to beat Clemson, lest we forget they play right off the bat opening week. But I also think they're the best team in the East, and that would mean they've got to just navigate about four games with extreme talent that they possess. It's maybe, maybe possible, but the odds are the odds. Georgia at plus 1,000. If you're so inclined to bet Jimbo Fisher, you can get Texas A&M at plus 3,000. If you believe in that young quarterback, we're not listed really anywhere near these. Uh, yeah, no, not us. You can find Notre Dame at plus 5,000. You can find Oregon at plus 6,000. Hell, you can find North Carolina at plus 8,000. And there's a whole lot of no Florida State to be found. But that's where we're at. That's okay. Maybe when we shock plus 5,000 Notre Dame, Bettors will be racing to the window for the massive turnaround that is now. I kid. Jeff Cameron Show, 97. ESPN Radio.
Part of the reason I'm excited for college football to start back up is that it likely means we're going to hear head-scratching comments from Dan Mullen. I know one happened today in which um, he was confused a little bit about what is or is not allowed with name image likeness. No shame in that. I think there's it's still the wild, wild west to some degree. We know that Miami, for example, had its players uh, sign on with a mixed martial arts gym, and they're offering $500 a month to every Hurricane scholarship player. Dan Mullen was asked about it at SEC Media Days today. Small gathering, local reporters. He answered the question with a question of his own. Is that legal? Didn't know whether or not it was it was legal, whether or not they could do it. Um, quote, I think of it is, meaning legal, there's obviously going to be a lot of Gators support and there are people to do it. My biggest deal is how do we make sure that this is all legal? I don't need to find myself in prison for violating rules that we're not sure that I'm even violating. He said he is still learning. I don't want to say something and all of a sudden I'm in front of a state committee on this stuff. So, I, you know, my man does <laughs> Most of his quotes are, even if he's going down the right path, to say that we don't know all of the uh, iterations and nuances of uh, the the name, image, likeness uh, policy, and we're learning as we go. That's true. You can say that, but leave it to him to just sound clueless. I have no idea. I'm going to give all my players shotguns. I don't know. Does that seem like something we should do? Have you seen, this has nothing to do with nothing, but I thought I'd bring it up, and I think you have. It was on again this weekend, and we're rounding out the the last stages of not having sports to fall back on during long periods of time, right? So we did have, of course, we still have the NBA Finals going on. This weekend we had the Open Championship, which was great, and plenty of Major League Baseball. So I, I, I was not without, of course. But we are... You know, kind of, we're getting we're getting closer to where you know at any given moment you can tune into some football. But in the interim, while I'm flipping around, especially because the open ended every day at like two o'clock in the afternoon, I would find just movies and the like and things like that to entertain myself. You've seen the Bee Gees documentary on HBO? Yeah, yeah. You told me to watch it. Yeah. Okay. So a couple of things stand out about the Bee Gees documentary that I'm bringing up here on the Jeff Cameron Show. A, I was shocked to find that I thoroughly enjoyed the Bee Gees documentary. That it was not only enjoyable, but downright good. It was a good documentary. And you kind of grew to appreciate certain Bee Gees songs you maybe had wildly dismissed. And just, or I, I shouldn't say wildly dismissed. That's not, that, that'd be weird. I'm wildly dismissing this song but that you had overtly dismissed because it was sung by the Bee Gees. You just said, well, I won't listen to that because it's the Bee Gees, and the vast majority of that collection doesn't do much for me. But going back and watching that documentary, you're kind of like, that's that's not terrible. Now the stigma of certain disco-era songs are gone, and there's actual elements of some of those uh, albums and songs that were good and that were later on, you know, you reflected upon the, the making of those records and thought, okay, it's not, it's not terrible. And the Bee Gees have several well-written songs, well-performed songs, but I cannot stop myself. The 
vast majority of that documentary is me going, why? Why would you wear those pants? Why, Andy Gibb? Why, Barry Gibb, are you dressed as you are? Barry, why? Why would that effort to become a lion? Uh, are you wearing gold pants that are sprayed on and look entirely uncomfortable that open up in the chest area to go with the gold that's <laughs> it's just over? Like, nobody thought we shouldn't do this. But there's one part that if you do tune in, I want you to, the next time it comes on, it's on a lot these days on HBO, you can find it. If you guys decide, oh, all right, I'll watch it, it'll be interesting. Because it is interesting. They're taking the stage, and it's during the time of uh, the disco demolition, that the White Sox, so this is sports-related, where they have disco demolition, and the whole, everybody knows that famous footage of Comiskey where they're blowing up the records, and it's, there was a lot of weird stuff going on with that, and this DJ made it possible. He was popular in the Chicago area. When you go back and you listen, he's talentless, but nonetheless, it was a, it's fascinating. Apparently, the Bee Gees were playing a big show, and they were in an arena on that night when disco, when the, when the records were being blown up in between games of a doubleheader uh, for the White Sox. And Barry Gibb is talking about it and talking about how he didn't even really realize that was a thing that was going on and he didn't know that there was such hatred and how it became a very weird thing for them that they were kind of victims of their own success and this backlash towards uh, disco music. <laughs> There's a part where it's they're backstage and the fans are out there in the arena, you know, ready to cheer on the Bee Gees as they're going to take the stage. And you can't see them, but you can hear them and it's dark and they're behind the stage. And you know how you see a lot of bands get together and they'll either pray or they'll hype each other up and let's have a great show tonight, guys. And they kind of join hands in a circle and maybe their manager's there and a few other people, makeup artists, and they're all patting them on the back. Have a great show. And usually they say something encouraging to garner confidence and hit the stage with great vigor. So they're backstage and they are kind of having that pre-show we're, we're going to go. And there's this guy, and I don't know if he's their manager or who he is. I can't, I can't keep a straight face as I tell you this story because I paused it and rewound it four or five times to my own amusement. My kids just thought I was crazy. It's it's like a set. It's like Will Ferrell wearing those jeans uh, for the Blue Oyster Cult bit, right? What they're wearing is so absurd and so uncomfortable. And the way the camera is set up, it is just zoomed in on one of the Bee Gees' ass. And it's, I mean, it's just, it's, it's obscene. It's just the man's ass with virtually no covering, these stretched pants that are, but they, because they're the Bee Gees and it's the 70s and they think it's perfectly okay to be dressed in that manner. None of them look at each other ironically and start to snicker or anything. They think this is okay. This is all right. But this one guy is kind of like, all right, here we go. All right. And he's having to look and take them seriously as they walk towards the stage in these outfits. It's impossible because I can't remember the one Bee Gees name. Like I know all the, I, I know some of them, but the one lesser known BG, he doesn't seem to have as much clout as the other Bee Gees. He's, Surely he can harmonize with the best of them, but he didn't. I don't know him as much. 
He was he was balding before they were all balding. He was that BG. And to his credit, he didn't get a wig or anything like that. He didn't pull a Mike Gundy. But go ahead, name name the name the BGs. Robin. Is it Robin? Robin Gibb. Yeah, I think it's Robin Gibb. Balding pretty bad. It's Barry, Andy, and Robin. Yeah, Gibb. Barry and Andy were separate. Like Robin was a little. I was a little shaky. So they're or not as profoundly talented, right? It's Robin in those pants. He's unathletic. He's got a frumpy, slumpy, sorry, droopy ass. <laughs> I kept thinking he must have been like, guys, do we? <laughs> guys, you know I don't work out. I mean, honestly, you, you make me get up in this get up every time we go out there. I don't have the figure that you do, Barry. Barry, I am not this uh, magnificent specimen the way you are. I droop. I don't have muscles. I My butt is flat. I'm not filling this thing out. It's just, can we wear some some baggy jeans and a T-shirt? Can we please do something? You just can tell inside of that man is this sadness that he wants to express, but he can't because it's what they have to do. And he knows that Barry damn well wants to wear that outfit. Barry can't wait to put that outfit on. Barry wore that stuff around the house. Barry wore that on walks on the beach for no reason. Like, Barry, that's Barry's everyday outfit. I'm going to the store, Barry Gibb. But my man, Robin, is like, this This makes me so sad. And the manager kind of is glancing over, and I think he takes a look at Robin's sorry ass. And it's just like, my God. Goodness, that's not. You can see he's kind of taken back by how flat and unathletic. <laughs> how how could you not? The situation calls for it. You just watch them walk up the steps and onto the stage. The camera, unfortunately for all of us, stays behind them to follow them to the stage. And if I were Robin. I would have tried to supplant myself from the last in the line to the middle because you don't want to be the guy that has no ass in that outfit that the camera is following to the stage. It's just this flumpy, frumpy, sorry. (laughs) He takes the steps, but he has to bow up straight face. Here we go. All right, guys. Once more into the breach. <laughs> I'm sorry. I have derailed this. Just go watch the scene. You'll see it. If you're flipping around, it's on. They're getting ready to take the stage. I think it's in Chicago. They're in an arena. The camera follows up. Watch the manager guy who's, like, trying to pump him up. He he takes a couple glances like, oh. Don't be blinded by Barry's great ass. Yeah. No, Barry's got his. Yeah, don't be sidetracked by Barry's greatness. You got you got to feel for Robin. Robin's not Barry. He's a foot shorter. He doesn't have an athletic bone in his body. Thank God for Barry and Andy or Robin would have not. He'd have been at your local grocery store. I don't know what Robin would have been doing, and he certainly wouldn't have been dressed like that. I can tell you that. <laughs> Final hour forthcoming. <laughs>